Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, October the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Pat Leahy and Jack Horgan-Jones are here to cast their eyes back over the events of the week. It's very wet out there today, and we're probably going to get to that subject a little bit later. But first, Pat, it's it's We rare. don't talk about the weather enough on this podcast. Yeah, well, we, we will talk at length about it a little bit later on. But but um, it's rare enough in Irish politics for a for a big foreign story to dominate the, the news agenda. And that's been the case this week with the ongoing war in Israel and Gaza. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I could probably count on the fingers of one hand the amount of times that, you know, international affairs have dominated Irish political discourse. And um, this is this is one of them. There was a debate in the Dáil on, uh, on Wednesday night about this. There was an agreed motion uh, in the end are agreed by most of the parties in the Dáil. But it was very clear and I sat in on that debate and watched it and it was very clear, I think, that there is a distinction between what the most of the opposition are saying on one hand and most of uh, the government. Certainly the government, qua ministers and so forth, although a number of government backbenchers gave very uh, impassioned speeches on uh, on the issue as well. But there is a clear government opposition distinction on it. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece during the week saying that sometimes politics is just about, you know, whose side you're on. And it's very clear that most of the opposition is on the side of the Palestinians. And while there was some commentary, uh, I think that uh, Sinn Féin, through Mary Lou MacDonald, had condemned the uh, Hamas attacks on Israeli civilians. In her speech on Wednesday night, that was very much mentioned in passing and followed immediately by a statement about, I can't remember the exact word she used, but it was to the effect that Israel's crimes against the Palestinians long predated this particular crime by Palestinians uh, against uh, against the uh, Israelis. And what the government is saying uh, is, is very much hewing to the EU line, which is that, you know, the, there should be a humanitarian ceasefire, there should be aid to Gaza, civilians in Gaza should not be targeted, uh, are the but Israel, but Israel has a right to defend itself, but, and and the, and the implication of that is Israel has the right to embark on military incursions into Gaza. Quite specifically, so actually, they talk about Israel's right to defend itself. But um, uh, although Michal Martin didn't have this line in his speech on Wednesday night, Leo Varadkar had earlier said it in the Dáil and said it the previous day as well that Israel has the right to pursue those who are responsible for the attacks on its uh, civilians last week. So I think there is quite a clear distinction between a a more sort of, I suppose, attempting to be even-handed, in line with the EU's position on it, um, a a more both-sidesy type approach to, uh, to the conflict, 
whereas Sinn Féin is very clearly in the pro-Palestinian camp. And yet camp. still Sinn Féin did sign up for um, for this motion, uh, somewhat to the anger, I think, of, of, of the people who are probably most vociferous in the chamber, who are the people in People Before Profit and on the left, who are the, the most, you know, um, strongest proponents, I suppose, of the of the Palestinian cause. Yeah, I think so. so it did, yeah. In its own and, way, and the most, Sinn Féin I would say the most anti-Israel, most overtly yeah. anti. So, uh, in its own Israel. way, was Sinn Féin following its own kind of middle path there? Yeah, I, I guess in a way, and you know, we've talked about it before here, where you know there is an anticipation and a preparation for power in Sinn Féin, and a realization that you know. When you're in power, you're not as free to jump on sides and jump on bandwagons as you might be when you are in opposition. That having been said, Sinn Féin's identification with the Palestinian cause goes back a long time and is of a piece with their identification with what I think they would call movements of national liberation, the the, the ANC back in the day, the PLO, the Basques more laterally the Catalans, uh, I I suppose. And, you know, Mary Lou McDonald, after all, has a Palestinian flag on her uh, her Twitter bio and has had it there for a long time, as do many of other Sinn Féin uh, TDs and supporters. So I I think the party is, I think you're right, I think it's trying to find its own middle way uh, uh, with with regard to that. There's no question that it is much more squarely and overtly pro-Palestinian and by extension anti-Israel in, in some respects than uh, than the government is. Well, one of the things I do wonder about this, Jack, is, I mean, taking on board that, that point about Sinn Féin's position and its conception mm. of itself as an anti-imperialist party and allied with, with other struggles around, around the world as, as it sees them, Ireland as a whole seems to me to be more strongly tilted towards the Palestinian cause than, uh, than most countries in Western Europe. I think that's true. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, I'm not sure that there's any kind of polling data on this as such, you know, that would suggest that there is a a strong wellspring of support for for Palestine. But certainly that's my sense of it. Yeah. Um, Why would that be? Well, I think that some of it anyway, probably harks back to a, a version of what Pat is talking about, whereby, you know, Republican nationalist sentiment is, generally speaking, aligned with uh, the interests and the the, the struggles of um, other people who will be seen as, as being of a, an oppressed minority by an oppressor, and that there is a, a kind of base level of common cause there between, uh, you know, Irish people's view of Britain and British colonialism and the struggle for independence and the other struggles for independence that cropped up around the world. Although one might counter that there are a few people who've been more oppressed over the course of the last thousand years or more than, than Jewish people. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they have no shortage of of, uh, of experience of oppression, I think, as Pat wrote this week, although no yeah, one no, has really been pointing that out Nobody mentioned that at all the other night. Nobody? Nope. Not one person. Isn't that interesting? Now... You know, I didn't stay for the entire debate. I okay. had to, okay, but, to but, write but, my but, copy. But it would be surprising. I suppose the point is, before, it is certainly the not a staple in the, in, the, in, the, in the speeches of the, the vast majority of the speeches. There was, yeah, there was no mention of it. Mary Lou MacDonald actually made quite a kind of very specific reference to that identification that I think actually a lot of Irish people feel with the uh, Palestinian cause. She said, we in Ireland know too, all too well the pain and tragedy of colonisation, occupation, dispossession. We've known conflict and suffering. We've known war. We know peace. She said, Ireland understands the playbook of the coloniser, the occupier 
and the oppressor. And Good speechifying. Uh, yeah, it yeah. was, but say, I think that and this is the distinction between the more kind of both sidesy approach of, uh, of, of, of the government and the full-throated support for the Palestinians that Sinn Féin espouses, that there was no mention of the Jewish perspective in, uh, in Mary Lou's But is, is the government not slightly neutral against the Israelis as well, though? I mean, like, I, I, take, I take absolutely your point that, you know, the, the, the anti-Israel, pro-Palestine stuff is more full-throated from the left and from the opposition, but, like, the government has been more even-handed than certainly, like, the, the commission, the EU commission has been. So far on this, yeah, because oh, this I, does all. Let's, I mean, let's move now to that because this does feed into because really what Ireland thinks about this one way or the other is only important up to a certain point. But the position of the European Union as a whole has been very confused over the last couple of weeks, and the Everardker has stepped in quite decisively. I think, and, at, and, at and just very point. quickly on that, we were we were speaking about you know the Everardker talking about how Israel has the right to pursue those Hamas militants who carried out that terror attack. But I I suspect that. There are unspoken caveats to that. I think that, you know, pursue via airstrikes, punishing and damaging and resulting in civilian life, loss of life as they are, may be qualified if there was a ground invasion, you know, and and whether, you know, that would be an untrammeled right in the in the eyes of the government or the eyes of the Taoiseach to prosecute a effective destruction of Gaza via ground invasion, I think would be... I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't um, think there'd be any support yeah. for that. I don't think it would be across the EU either. But you're right, yeah, the EU position was quite confused. It was reflexively pro-Israel, I think, at the start. But one of the difficulties for the EU in situations like this is that the EU only has a common foreign policy when everybody agrees on it. And there are distinctions between, you know, what various member states... Uh, what their their traditional or their current approach is to uh, to questions like this, and you know that I, I suppose is hardly is hardly surprising. And Ireland is certainly regarded by Israel and most observers to be the most pro-Palestinian state uh, in the EU. So, whereas Germany, for example, for good historical reasons, it should be said, tends to be very much in the in the other camp and very yeah, you know it, it's automatic reaction visitor is, is, to is Tel Aviv. This week. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you saw that perhaps you know went some way to explaining Ursula von der Leyen's. Uh, actions over the course of certainly the first week after the the Hamas atrocities in in Israel, where it was very much unconditional support for whatever Israel deems necessary, and there was no talk about international which, law, which or anything was like addressed that. by by the Taoiseach and the Dáil this week. Uh, I can't remember the exact formulation of words, but I think he said something like it was uh, not not as clear as it should have been. And Michal Martin kind of trod a more careful line. We were asking his spokesperson about this in the cabinet briefing. Um, on Tuesday, and he was saying, "Look, he wouldn't personalize it to von der Leyen, but you know, broad strokes. You know, we believe also that the the, the messaging was was a little less than than straightforward or less balanced. I think was and it was, was a bit phrase. of a mess as well, wasn't it? Because I mean, I take Pat's point that you know, different countries have different la- different national interests, and it was the famous was it the Henry Kissinger quote about when I want to phone up mm. Europe, who do who you know who do I ring or who do I kill or who answers the phone or whatever, and actually we had a surprising degree of near unanimity last, not complete unanimity, but near unanimity last year in terms of reacting to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which was more impressive than we've seen in previous situations like the Yugoslavian wars in the in the 1990s. But, you know, that unanimity is still hard won and you're not always going to get it by the looks of things. Yeah, and it takes time to assemble because essentially you're having conversations, European institutions are having conversations with 27 different actors and, you know, I guess sometimes, especially like this on 
on on on issues that people will have a long history on themselves. Um, I, I think it could sometimes be kind of like herding cats, which isn't mm-hmm. an excuse for von der Leyen or any uh, or anyone else to go ahead and speak for Europe when. It's quite obvious there are different views in you. And, and when, in fact, in her position, as I understand it, you know, foreign affairs is not part of her brief or part of her remit. So she was definitely speaking out of line. Yeah, without she, a mandate. She really was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is probably part of, part of the problem with how European politics works. I mean, the EU in general is is a bit of a consensus making machine, and it works best when it's dealing with kind of complex or legalistic questions, which result often in kind of fudgy consensuses or consensuses that are open to interpretation. And when it comes to something like this, and it's why the the unitary stance on Ukraine was so remarkable, and on other things uh, like the COVID response, you know, where feelings are high and where convictions are strongly held, it can be harder to achieve that point of kind of fudgy consensus that that the EU specialises in. And the consensus is often brittle and it can crack under pressure or crack as circumstances change. And But, you know, this is how we know that the European Union is not in fact a super state or an an empire Mm. because it is only in very limited circumstances that you know, Ursula von der Leyen can speak on behalf of the European Union and then when she has, you know, the agreement of 27 member states, certainly on something like this. What's interesting as well is the the US uh, and overnight Thursday into Friday, Joe Biden made a, a very rare uh, speech from the Oval Office. I think it's only a second. He was seeking to kind of alloy the uh, the Ukraine response and the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict. And, and I think that kind of fundamentally and certainly within the EU and within Ireland, I think there will be a, a difficulty in just twinning up those two quite distinct, I think, foreign policy uh, or challenges. Or the parallels and, and might be drawn in parallel- different ways from the ways in which he was making Precisely. them. When you're talking about things like, you know, shelling cities or bombing cities, you know, obviously there seems to be a different view of when Russia does that. than when And who is straightforwardly the aggressor and the victim and whether mm-hmm. there is a straightforward aggressor and victim, you know, that can be sketched out equally um, and, and, and what equivalences can be drawn between the two. So perhaps there's a broader question there for EU uh, foreign policy vis-a-vis how it chimes with US policy and the US approach to, to this, which is clearly a very tightly aligned with Israel, uh, one which I suppose we shouldn't be surprised about, but nonetheless... Yeah, well, well, we'll leave it there because undoubtedly we'll be coming back to it over the next while because this problem is not going to go away. In fact, it's almost certainly going to get horribly worse. Move on to another another subject of joy here, uh, Pat, which is the ongoing disputes over the allocation of monies in the budget to our health service. We know that Stephen Donnelly was very disappointed on the day. We now know that the head of the HSE is equally disappointed. Um, how much is the shortfall? And are we just not going to be coming back to this in nine months' time with a with well, a, we'll be coming back a supplementary? To we'll be coming back to it before then because there will be a supplementary estimate, which is official speak for a, a, a bailout or a top-up in uh, to this year's uh, estimate, this year's vote for the um, of, of money to the Department of Health, which will be somewhere around the region, the Department of Health thinks of 1.5 billion short in terms of, so the money that the government allocated this time last year for the Department of Health this year would be about 1.5 billion short. There's going to be a supplementary estimate of somewhere between 1.1 and 1.5 estimate. That has to go because all monies that are spent must be voted on by 
uh, must be voted on by the Dáil. So the supplementary estimate, the supplement being to last year's estimate, will come before the Dáil before the end of the year. And that'll be, as I say, somewhere between 1.1 and 1.5 billion. What the Department of Health and the HSE say is that, look, we told the Department of Public Expenditure last year that the money they were giving us wasn't going to be enough for this year. And so it has proved to be. They are now saying, though much more publicly in the wake of the budget, both Stephen Donnelly, uh, who spoke to us the day after the budget, and uh, and Bernard Gloucester, who's the head of the HSE, who's been out a couple of times in interviews uh, at the weekend and since, uh, have said that the money you are giving us this year for the budget, uh, for the health budget, will not be, that you are giving us this year for next year, voting this year for next year, will not be sufficient. We will need a supplementary estimate again uh, this time next year. So the health budget all told in about 22.5 billion euros uh, this year, of which uh, a little over 1 billion is designated by the Department of Public Expenditure as once-off measures, non-recurring measures. So that will deal with some spending pressures, but uh, also Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian refugees' costs uh, associated with that and some, um, uh, and some outstanding COVID costs. But the Department of Health says it is going to need not alone the extra 1 billion for this year, which then goes into the base for next year, but another billion, billion and a half and, next and year. We were talking about this during the week. I mean, there's this health health resilience fund, I think it's called. Yeah, that's uh, the extra billion or so. That's, that's for this year, is it? No, that's for next year. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's for next year, but it is... Disappear down into but the so my question, what, what my question to you earlier, My question for? to you earlier on the week, and I'm not sure we know exactly, but is the health resilience fund the first stage of next year's bailout just already put aside? In this year's in the budget for next year already, isn't it? But actually, all it will do is cover the one billion, one point five billion hole that is in the health budget this year, okay. and therefore is a starting point yeah. for the size of the okay. hole next year. So, so, so there, there are holes. Up? There are holes of billions. Yeah, there's some money to fill them, but we are safe in the knowledge that there are many more holes of billions coming down the track. It I think it's important to just add a tiny bit of context mess. at this stage, yeah. numerical context, right? Which is we're talking about millions of billions. Okay, so the health budget is twenty two point five billion for uh, for next. Next year, that's what was uh, that was what was in the budget last year. All in, it costs about a hundred billion or so to run the country. So almost a quarter of all the money that is being spent by the, especially when you include the supplementaries in it, uh, the guts of a quarter, maybe a little more next year of the money that is spent by the government will be spent on health. Mm. And we should add to that the fact that because we don't actually have a universal healthcare system, that's not all the money that gets spent, in health, spent on health in government. Ireland. No, There's an awful yeah. lot of money yeah. spent through private insurance companies and private medical care and all those kinds of things. So we have this and we know this, you know, to, because we hear it again and again, we, we put an awful lot of money into health and we get at best mediocre outcomes. And in fact, in some cases, like the way our accident and emergencies in certain hospitals work, we get absolutely appalling uh, outcomes at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Our outcomes are not actually, kind of comparatively speaking, that mediocre, to well, be honest. Well, We're very, we, very good on some things like cancer care. And things like but, certainly but improving. Get, yeah. what, there, what there is, is in, in, in certain parts of the health service, you know, you can pick out individual bits like the treatment of children with scoliosis, that type of thing. Or mental health. Youth, youth, mental, uh, youth mental health. The accident and emergency units. These are all pinch points. By and large, and looked at globally... It, to the extent that you can do that, our health outcomes 
are considerably better than the NHS, considerably uh, better than the North. Our life expectancy has gone up steadily over the last uh, 20, uh, 20 years or so. So our health outcomes are not as bad as people think they are. But because some of those pinch points like accident and emergency and so forth and the other ones that I mentioned are so high profile. And in the case of accident and emergency, because it is the first point of contact mm. that many people have with the health service, there is a perception that the health service is actually a complete basket case, which by any rational examination it okay, isn't. but one of the things that, that contributes to that perception of a complete basket case is the sense that the state has thrown increasingly vast sums of money at it and hasn't necessarily seen the outcomes. Now, I take your point. Some of the outcomes have got better and a lot of health profile issues have, have, have improved. But I suppose to come back to where we started with this, this is not the way to finance the health service, is it? With these shortfalls every year, these rather unproductive fights uh, and then rowing back on it, you know, it's not the way to do it. I mean, yeah, I mean, as with so much public policy, you know, I wouldn't start from here if I were you, but I think, it seems to me, right, that just trying to interpret it as best I can, I've written a lengthy piece about this um, for tomorrow's paper, that the decision has been kind of made in the Department of Public Expenditure that the health budget will continue to balloon. It's basically, I spoke to somebody who's involved in this sort of thing in government and said, we can't give these guys an extra 2 billion euros every year. That's just going, to, it's going to eat up. They keep doing that. It eat up, eats up the discretionary spending increases in uh, in other departments. So it seems to me that the approach that the Department of Public Expenditure has taken, and bear in mind there was a step change in health funding a couple of years ago where it got an extra three billion or so to deal with COVID. And all of that money, even though COVID has passed, all of that money has been basically kept in the budget in health. Also bear in mind that the Department of Health used to be the Department of Health and Children in the not so distant past. And it had, uh, it spent, I mean, the budget for children is give or take, give or take, about two billion or so euros this um, uh, this year. So that used to be in the health budget as well. But yet the health service, the cost of health healthcare, continue to rise far. You know, for, for good reasons. For, for in some good cases, reasons. there is yeah. inflation. For, there is a growing reasons. population. Yeah. There is an aging population. All those things. All those all those things are true. And there's been additional demand. And one of the questions, I suppose, for next year is is whether that surge in demand that the health service saw this year after COVID is going to continue next year or whether it's kind of like a bubble that has gone And gone also the, this is not unique system. to Ireland. I mean, you mentioned the NHS. You know, there are, is, yeah, there yeah, are pressures, there are pressures from demographics, you. there's pressures from uh, new expensive technologies that yeah. people want access to. Of course there they do. All those yeah. types yeah. of yeah. things. There's, 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 one, there's one point that's worth drawing out as well, though, because I think what Pat has said is correct about deeper effect of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform effectively drawing a line in the sand and saying thus far shall the, the, the growth in the health budget go and no further, or at least not without a big fight. And what the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, is saying, pre the budget, he was saying it is time for a realistic conversation about health care. And before, during negotiations and after, including in the Dáil last week, he stood up and he pointed out that amongst Western EU countries, I think was the stat that he had, we are 11th or 12th in terms of spending per head of population. Depends how you measure it. it but, yeah, as is always yeah, the case yeah, with yeah, these things. Yeah. But nonetheless, this is his rhetoric. That's definitely what he said, yeah. But this is his political position. And I think it's not too much of a read into his rhetoric on this to extrapolate that he kind of thinks, yeah, you should be spending one or two billion a year more on health every year and that's right and proper and if we're going to 
roll out the services that I certainly think need to be rolled out, that's uh, where we need to be going. And I think this is where the kind of political problem is because you have a, a fundamental divergence in the view of the world between the Department of Health and, and Department of Public Expenditure Reform, perhaps not all that new, but that, that is that is succinctly expressed in, in the outlooks of the two ministers in charge of those departments. And that's where this schism, such as it is, exists or comes think, into sharp focus. Yeah, I, I think what has been decided in the Department of Public Expenditure is, that, is no matter what we, no matter what the budget allocation for health is, there's going to be an overshoot. And we are going to have to have a fight with them. So we might as well have a fight at a lower level than at a higher level. And bear in mind that the mission of the Department of Public Expenditure, not as their defender or anything, but their mission is not just to supervise health spending. Mm. Their mission is to supervise the spending on all the other services that feel they have and all the other areas of government activity in social welfare and education and justice, all of whom feel that they have just as legitimate a claim to additional expenditure to provide additional services as does health. And public expenditure is in the middle of that. Every department, every minister sees only their own vote. Mm. But actually, that's one of the reasons why the Department of Public Expenditure was to set up, was to act as a buffer between every department and is, the exchequer. Is there a party political edge to this? Stephen Donnelly is a Fianna Fáil minister. Pascal Donoghue's a Fine Gael minister. There was a thing Michal Martin seemed to feel the need to come out and defend Stephen Donnelly's right to make these points and for the head of the HSE to make those points. Not really, no? I don't think so. To be, I don't think, or to the extent that there is, I don't think it's that it is a, a, significant play, think, yeah. a significant factor in this. I don't think so. I mean, insofar as like when one party feels our minister is getting barracked, they might kind of generally turn out for them. But like as a jumping off point, as a reason for why we're sitting here having this conversation, is it a Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil falling out? Don't think so. No. No, I don't think so. One of the differences between the health budget and the Irish Times' subscription policy is we just ask you for a sum of money and then we don't come back and ask you for any more, or at least for for 12 months we don't do that. Uh, You can go and find lots more details about all that at irishtimes.com. There's other similarities though, a vast (laughs) bureaucracy. (laughs) (laughs) Opaque, opaque finances. (laughs) And now we're going to take a break before Pat says something he can't take back. We mentioned already that it's very wet outside. Uh, It's not as wet in Dublin as it uh, as it has been in Cork for the last forty eight hours. It's a terrible, awful flooding in in Cork and in towns around the city, Middleton and uh, and elsewhere. This is the world we have to live with now, Jack. Is it? Uh, to an extent, yeah. I mean, we're used to uh, we're used to rain in Ireland, but it does seem to be particularly uh, biblical at the moment. And to the extent that, as you say, Hugh, you have these terrible floods in Middleton and Glanmire and elsewhere, which uh, really seem to have taken a lot of people by surprise. There was a month's rainfall in uh, in a day, um, and I mean, some of the footage is really remarkable. You know, like kind of streets underwater, the the Venice of of uh, of, of Cork East. It's it's not quite, but um, it's it's obviously hugely damaging for the people who live there and, and the businesses that operate there um, and I think it presents a, a political problem um, in one way which is as old as the hills because politicians going to visit the sites of natural disasters uh, is, is is a trope and we have we have a good history of that here in Ireland I'm, yes I'm reminded of Joan Burton falling out of a boat in 2015 ah, um, more recently great days 
Kevin Boxer Moran stripped to the waist in 2020, uh, battling... Bertie Ahern standing glumly in the middle of a street in Juncandra up to his oxters in water, yeah. We, we, we could go on. Um, so it's, it's always been a political issue, but I think that because there's a climate element to this, and we'll be writing about this a little bit in the paper tomorrow, um, it's going to become kind of refracted through that to an extent, mm-hmm. um, partially because the, the science would suggest that, you know, we're getting more uh, periods of intense rainfall, which is leaving the ground more sudden. And then also because there's kind of more warm air, this is my very much layman's explanation, there's more warm air, there's more intense periods of of of, uh, of rain. Ireland which, is getting which warmer then, and wetter. Warmer and wetter, exactly. Yeah. And it's falling on ground that is already wet and, do, and doesn't drain away. And then therefore you're getting greater volumes of, of water coming into population centres at greater greater speed. And you're, you're going to be asked in the first instance, what have you done so far about this? What are you going to do in the future? But I think one of the, one of the interesting kind of angles to this as well is you know, the extent to which these problems which occur downstream and in centres of population are affected by things like land use upstream and the intensity or otherwise of the industries that take place within river basins. So whether it's agriculture or forestry and exactly how those industries are asked to change going forward to, to impact both you know, flood management, but a whole load of other policies to do with the environment, the built environment and climate change. So I think that's why this is, in addition to the very real human cost that's being felt in in Cork and elsewhere, um, the frequency of this and the fact that it'll get muddled up with the climate question, which is less divisive here and less of a culture war issue here than elsewhere in Europe. But it does have shades of that at times. And I suspect as we go on, those shades will will become more prevalent in this debate. Although, you know, climate mitigation is a subject which really only started to come onto the political agenda in the last five years at most, I, I think, Pat. And, you know, reading the coverage of of, of all this over the last couple of days, there's, 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 there's two big issues, it seems to me. One is that there seems to have been a certain slowness in implementing flood mitigation measures in the uh, in the Lee Valley and and, and and the rivers around there. Certainly, that's what locals are saying. There were plans which were supposed to be implemented 10 to 15 years ago. They've been, got bogged down in planning and they haven't happened yet. How much of a difference they'd have made, I don't know. And the other one is this question now of people who live in these areas, which once they're flooded can't be insured. So, you know, they need help. Uh, and that's something that the state has already said it's going to, you know, dig in on. But I saw the figure of 10 million uh, euro mentioned there. That didn't look as if it was going to cover what, what's been happening down in Cork. I would say it'll cover a fraction of it by the looks of things. And, you know, I think it's been clear for some time that along with reducing the amount of carbon that is that is emitted from Ireland, which is something that the government is committed to and signed up to binding international treaties to achieve, that there is an urgent need to prepare for the costs of climate change that are already baked in. And I think the one thing we can say about this flooding is that we're going to see more of Mm. this and uh, and, and we will see it more often. But just looking at the you know, the pictures of the flooding in uh, in Middleton. I, I, I'm not sure that there's any kind of flood defences really that could be put up that are going to prevent that sort of flooding. And, you know, I'm not sure you can, can put up you know, six foot flood defences either side of the main street in uh, in every town. Although, in, as Jack says, some of the some of the some of the measures may be well upstream. Sure, of that, for know? sure. But yeah. e- e- even still. I think we are going 
to have to live with flooding events like this more frequently into the future. And there will be a political demand that government steps in to help people rebuild their homes uninsured, and their uninsured businesses. People. Uninsured people. As, yeah. as Mark Hilliard reports on the, on the front yeah. of, of the paper today, yeah. you know, you simply cannot write an insurance policy for an event that is inevitable. You know, insurers will not do that. So you're going to have, presumably, more and more people living in flood zones or zones that weren't flood zones, but all of a sudden will become flood zones, whereby you can't insure against this kind of thing. And then that creates a question, I think, for the state, both, I mean, not in a pressing sense, in a financial way, because, you know, in the grand scheme of everything the state spends, it'll be able to find the money to bail these people out, but should it on an ongoing basis? And, you know, what's the kind of moral hazard of repeatedly bailing out people who whose homes are, are ruined or whose businesses are ruined, but live in an uninsurable flood zone? You know, and these are the kind of questions that I think come into sharp focus as we get further and further down down the road of mitigating climate because I think Pat is right like you know so much of this is baked in that even if we were able to pull up some notional handbrake in the morning and switch to zero or uh, net uh, negative carbon emissions in Ireland or in the world or indeed the whole world in the yeah. whole world you would You're still, still you, looking you, you would still yeah, be reaping decades what, yeah. what, what has gone what has happened in the last 50, Which 60, 70 years really difficult conversations about deciding that people can't and live in certain hugely, places anymore because they're expensive. just not tenable huge, you know? hugely expensive oh. you know I mean, and, oh. and there was I um, I think we, sp- we spoke about it in a podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, IFAC did this report about how much this was going to cost. And the chief economist, whose name escapes me for a second time, went on Morning Ireland to talk about it. But it was it was like, it was proper scary stuff in proper terms money. of the, proper yeah. money. It was proper money. It's not the 10 million fund, which yeah. will not be enough, but will there will be enough for this particular instance. It was it was tens of billions. I think you may have even said hundreds of billions, you know, to, to do this over the over the next coming decades, whether it's buying off farmers, convincing them to change the way they use the land, whether it's changing the forestry shock, whether it's building flood defences. I mean, the, the, the cost of mitigating these things and the politics of mitigating these things is going to be one of the things that animates, I think, political life and decision making in government in this country and and others for you know decades to come. Nope, we'll leave it there. What a jolly jolly show it is uh, yeah, today. today. Um, we always like to look at uh, articles which particularly took our fancy from IrishTimes.com over the course of the week. And in a first pass uh, this week, you and I have chosen the, the same article independently. Uh, I am going to uh, exercise trois de seigneur here and uh, have a first go <laughs> um, um, at, the, at this subject. I was very taken by this article. Naomi O'Leary um, managed to grab President Michael D. Higgins, who's been in the news quite a lot this week anyway and ask him a question which I I gathered from the piece she'd been looking to put to him for quite a while Uh, the gist of the question was whether Russia's war in Ukraine is an imperialist adventure whether the relationship between the two countries can be classified as as imperial or or colonial and I have to say that Michael D. Higgins after saying to Naomi that uh, he was going to give her an answer proceeded to not give her an answer and hedged around Uh, the area what what, what I kind of thought. Well, I, I kind of thought that Naomi's conclusion. Um, was it, she Good says, kicker. "I was left yeah. with the impression that my question had not been answered, though perhaps indirectly it had by absence." And so, in other words, well, what you did, what we're interpreting Naomi to interpret yes. Michael D to be saying here <laughs> is by not saying, by not answering the question, he doesn't actually believe that Russia's war is an imperialist war, or at I least t- he wouldn't call it one. I, yeah. I think yeah. that's what Naomi was coming but, yeah. but perhaps we might get a better understanding of what he meant if we could hear Bra- his brace words. Yourselves. Brace yourselves. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> There's no stopping him. So, 
as Naomi writes, when I put my query to him, he began by replying, I, I don't wish to avoid any question. Uh, we went on to say, there is no doubt whatsoever that the breaking up of the Soviet Union is there as an influence of the thinking of the Russian president. He went on. Passion then came, and I'm reading from Naomi here. Passion then came into the president's voice as he began to denounce the hubris of the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union when capitalism was assumed to have become a single hegemonic force. It was announced that everything was now changed and that we had a new single system and a single civilization, and that it was driven by the marketplace. And therefore, it was only a matter of time into which every form of alternative collapsed. Bravo. Very good. Um, so we'll take from that uh, that he's not a fan of Francis Fukuyama, uh, but we kind of knew that anyway. But he, he, was, is a, he, he is a fan of another Francis. Pope well, no, well, well, no, we get to Pope, I'll, I'll let you have your speak about Pope, Pope or let Michael D have his speak about Pope Francis in the middle. I, I, I mean, I love, I love your impressions, Pat. But I do find this interesting, you know? I do find the, the fact that Michael D and his portion of the ideological spectrum still bridles at the notion that, that the Soviet Union was a successor state to the Russian Empire, which it clearly was, that the Russian Empire was an empire, which it clearly was, and a kind of, as always, differentiated, and I think there's an Irish aspect to this, differentiated between the great empires of the European landmass, the, the Austro-Hungarians, the Ottomans, the Russians, and the various colonial and imperial adventures which, which they undertook, and the other form of colonialism. So when they talk about Ireland, we were talking about this earlier, the anti-imperial struggle, Sinn Féin identifying with the PLO and the ANC, not identifying so much with nationalists in Slovenia or Slovakia or Armenia or, or Ruthenia. It's a very specific interpretation of what imperialism meant and what it what it didn't mean. And it's partly because I think probably of in some cases there's some sympathy for uh, for the left, even in its rather malign form that it took that it took in the Soviet Union. But in the other it, there's another way in which um, I think Irish. I'll, I'll stop now. But I think Irish Republicans. I think you're about to get onto the point. That Irish Republicans and people on the Irish left think of themselves as uh, as the oppressed in the same sense as people in the were oppressed in the Congo by the Belgians or in South Asia by the British. Whereas in fact, the reality is that our history is much more like what happened to various small countries under the Austro-Hungarians. End yeah. of end of lecture. Yeah, one might also <laughs> add that there was on in 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 some parts or from some parts of of Ireland and Irish society, rather enthusiastic participation in the uh, in the British Empire. I've heard that. That's, yeah, and not just from yes, you know, separated brethren. Indeed, in the it's, it's not peculiar yeah. to the Irish left either. Is it that that kind of identification? Yeah, with one that form kind of, of one yeah, form exactly. Of struggle it's kind of, it's, 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 it's common. It's an artifact of Cold War politics as well, right? You know, like whatever whatever camp you're in, you will you will support and become kind of blind to their sins. Um, because it is, you, you know, whatever. Without digging too much into the nature of the Ukrainian national struggle right now and this wrap wrap of the week in a for a, for a podcast, you know, you can see parallels between what people were saying in Ireland a hundred years ago 
about the relationship between Ireland and Britain and what, you know, what people are saying in the Ukraine. There's questions of language, questions of identity, who you are. Are we all the same country? No, we're not all the same country. This is the kind of, you know, arguments that were being had in Belfast 120 years ago. Yeah, well, it's also, it's very clear what the view of the Ukrainians is as to whether they, you well, know, have Ukrainians, been... not all. Most Ukrainians, I think, know about whether it's a colonial, I mean, colonial relationship with well. Moscow or, or yeah. is it not, you know. I mean, I, I think I think Jack's point is good and it kind of goes back a bit earlier to what we mentioned about, you know, politics sometimes being about whose side you're on, you know, you mm. pick a side yeah. and that, I mean, the the blind spots, I'm sure there's lots of blind spots of the Irish right, but there's certainly lots of blind spots of the Irish left and I suppose Cuba being most noticeable Indeed. amongst them, but that is a whole other series of podcasts. And you did want to mention Michael D's views on, on Pope Francis. I did. I was greatly struck again. Naomi uh, is in, in, in Rome with the president all week. And yesterday the president met with, um, uh, met with uh, Pope Francis and uh, he said... Surely you should say said that Pope to, Francis met with the president. <laughs> he said to <laughs> Naomi afterwards, I don't give instructions to the Pope, but the Pope knows where I stand and he has no difficulty with it. Jack, what was your article? I knew you wouldn't forget this, Hugh, because it's your article. (laughs) Another first. Yes, um, you and others were taken with the description of Smithfield by Time Out magazine as the, what was it, the second 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 coolest coolest place on the planet. planet. And Hugh, yeah, get this, so Smithfield. Hugh uh, wrote a polemic against Smithfield, poor old Smithfield. Proclaiming it's not it's not even the second coolest place in Dublin Seven, and <laughs> which is true, <laughs> which is true, yeah. Um, and went through a dis- a roll of dishonor of all the things that are that are wrong with Smithfield, picking out it must be said the the few th- the a few things that are right and good and and, and enjoyable about Smithfield, but you know, encapsulating I felt um, what is a, a bit of a a kind of mishmash of different styles, ideas, histories, uh, projects, projections. None of them terribly none well of them, executed. None of them aligning well together. Yeah. None of them particularly well executed. Um, I do feel uh, a bit guilty because I do not like not the without cobblestone charm in the lighthouse cinema. You know? Yeah. But, uh, what is the coolest place in Dublin 7, Hugh? Uh, the coolest place in Dublin 7 is probably... Oh, come on. Which? It's probably somewhere it's a, a bit over towards Stony Batter. It's Stony Batter. It's Stony Batter where you can get your... Yeah, your is it your tacos and your flat beers. Coolness seems to be reduced. I mean, I haven't done my research, of course, as yeah. you'd expect. Coolness seems to be reduced to about four things, which is basically, you know, uh, street food, craft beer, third wave, cof- third wave coffee, yeah. and vintage clothes market. Well, it also moves Once on, with, it also moves on with the property prices because um, true, because uh, Stony Batter is insanely expensive now, so I suspect it will. It'll go. There was an interesting piece in the FD, actually, about Hackney and why Hackney, uh, one of the reasons why Hackney will will never um, lose its its newfound cool is because of a deficit of infrastructure, apparently. It's not on the tube, therefore uh, there's a kind of limit within the within the schema of London property oh, right. prices okay, to, how, the, to how expensive it can get. I saw get. the author, Mark O'Connell, suggesting that next year the coolest place in the planet will be Sandyford. Uh, but it has a Lewis line, so therefore it can't be. You know what, though? You know, if, if I wanted to find out where the coolest place was, like, we're the last fellas I'd ask. <laughs> I think on that highly... Three guys with a podcast. I think on that highly accurate note, we will uh, we we will leave it there. Thanks very much to Pat and to Jack and to our producer, Declan Conlon. Thanks to JJ Vernon, who was on the desk. We'll be back with you uh, very soon. Stay dry over the weekend and talk to you then. <laughs>